good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to USTA Florida's Here to Serve podcast. My name is Laura Bowen, and I'm the executive director at USTA Florida. And today I have two brand new first timers on the podcast, and I could not be more excited. They're joining us to talk about where tennis stands and dig into some data, both in Florida and nationwide, in terms of how tennis is growing and where it's growing. So first up, I have Brian White. Brian is the Executive Director of the Tennis Industry Association. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you. Happy to be here. And joining Brian is Mickey Mall. Mickey is the USTA Managing Director of Engagement Services. Mickey, we're so happy to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Laura. Happy and excited to be here on the Here to Serve podcast. Super. So before we get started, since both of you are new to the podcast, I was hoping that each of you could talk a little bit about your tennis background and what brought you to your current role in the industry. So Brian, do you want to start and then we'll move over to Mickey? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I actually don't have much of a tennis background. Um, uh, my background is in association management. Um, you know, throughout the uh, last couple of years of high school and college, I, I actually raced professional motocross. I did that from 2000 to 2008, um, raced professionally and went, you know, went to business school, got a degree and kind of fell into association management, working primarily with trade organizations. And uh you know, so uh, there's there's a lot of similarities in just mm-hmm. you know sp- sport, you know tennis and mm-hmm. motocross and things like that, and uh, so it's kind of parlayed very well. But uh, came on um, with the Tennis Industry Association in 2019, and uh, yeah, been been uh, I've no tennis background prior to that, but I am ingrained in it now on a day to day basis. Well, you're one of my people then, because that's me also didn't have a tennis background, definitely had more of a management and business uh, type of background in communications. And so, but once you get into tennis, you know, it's sort of hard not to love it, right? You sort of start to adopt it and love it. All right, Mickey, do you want to share your tennis background and how you ended up at USTA working with our wonderful folks over there? You got it. Well, it's I can't compare to uh, being a rock star motocross racer. I know. Like Andy has a great <laughs> podcast radio voice, yes, too. I Now I know who I'm going to turn the podcast over to when I'm done with it. It's, Brian, you're like top every, of my list. Every, you have such a great voice. Everybody hates the sound of their own voice, though. When, I, when I'll when i hear this recording back afterwards, I'll, I, I won't like it. Yeah, so... <laughs> So anyway, my my tennis, I, I started as a junior tennis player, followed the whole junior pathway from national junior tournaments, played D1 college tennis, and then uh, playing satellites and challengers for a few year, years, uh, ran out of money and ended up as a college coach in the Big Ten, a uh, few years college coaching, and then really uh, followed, my real interest was in product and equipment uh, of tennis and the sport. Started working uh, for Prince in the Midwest as a sales rep. Uh, if you remember the Prince brand, uh, some people may not remember the Prince brand, but, uh, and then I became national sales manager at Babolat USA uh, before they were really a, a no, well-known brand. And we spent eight years there as a national sales director and then moved over to Wilson where I was commercial director of North and South America for the better part of five years before joining uh, the USTA here in this current position I'm in. So it's been two and a half years 
about two and a half years and a lot of change going on, a lot of great things happening in the sport of tennis. So excited to be here. Well, I'm going to do a little side note before I get into the questions, and this is off script, but if you haven't seen the movie Air, I just saw it on Wednesday, and I will tell you that you should definitely see it, and Mickey, you'll you'll really be interested in a fun fact in there that um, Arthur Ashe and the racket that he was promoting uh, back at the time in the 80s was actually some of the inspiration for the Air Jordan. And that plays a role in the movie. And so I immediately thought of all of my tennis friends like you who have been in the manufacturing world and have worked at Wilson and have worked in all these different places. So if you haven't seen Air Movie and you want to see a little bit of the role that tennis played at the time in, you know, one of the the biggest changes in the the sports marketing business, it's a it's a really good movie for us to geek out on. I think a little bit. I was excited to see tennis in there. Well noted. I've got that on my radar to hopefully yeah, put it see on in your the next list. few weeks. <laughs> All right, well, let's get down to our uh, data here, because that's what we're here to talk about. So there's always been a debate about the accuracy of the information that we get around tennis participation. Brian, can you talk about the data that TIA collects and how you determine how accurate it is? Yeah, and I, so I can talk a little bit about the methodology. So, um, and it's changed a little bit over the course of the of the last two years, also. So, so, um, so two years ago, we actually uh, partnered with the National Golf Foundation. So historically, um, the data came from uh, the PAC study, uh, the PAC survey. It was the uh, Physical Activity Council administered by Sports Marketing Surveys, and what the PAC study was was a survey of 18,000, a representative sample size of 18,000 respondents across the U.S. So what we did two years ago um, is take what the National Golf Foundation was doing. They were doing something very similar to the PAC survey, but it's called PES. It's the Participation Engagement Study. Same exact questions as PAC, just doing it for golf. Um, and they were actually asking tennis questions, and they've been doing that for a number of years. And that was a sample size of 18,000 respondents as well. So what we did uh, two years ago was take that 18,000 uh, survey sample from PAC, 18,000 from the National Golf Foundation, blended those numbers together to double our sample size. So it's now 36,000 um, uh, a, a 36, survey uh, sample set. Um, the increase in size and doubling of that um, that sample size, it, it just makes our data more statistically viable. Um, from a confidence level standpoint, the data is then rolled and combined with the prior year to increase the reliability, you know, validity of the data as well. So it's a two-year rolling average. And with this 36,000 um, size data set, the margin of error on the national tennis participation rate is of 7.7%. It's plus or minus 0.2%. So it's at okay. the 95% confidence level. Excellent. That's a really good explanation. Um, and again, I, I actually had to read a book recently called Naked Statistics, which really has helped me kind of understand a little bit more about, you know, how you can get fair sample sizes. So those of you who are out there um, who really want to understand more of that world, I highly recommend that book to kind of 
simplify it in some terms, but appreciate that information because I do think that we don't say enough about the sample sizes and, you know, why we have confidence in um, in the study. So I really do appreciate that and appreciate the golf folks thinking of us when they're asking their questions. Good. And, and Laura, just to quickly add to that, uh, since Brian, you've been around five years with the TIA, right, Brian? About, about five years, yeah. And I, I've been on as a representative either for the brands in some capacity for probably two decades now almost, Laura. And I can tell you, we do some due diligence every few years, the TIA would, to look at is there something better out there that's that's more reliable. And right now we've got the best data available and we are the leader by far with racket sports and doing research data and insights that many other racket sports look at us to be the ones to gather the data. And as you know, there's been many uh, different surveys and studies mm -hmm. out there, not super valid uh, compared to 36,000 re right. respondents consistently surveyed. Uh, so th there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there, unfortunately, but we have what we think is the best that we can get right now for the sport of tennis. And that's why you guys are here to explain to us. So, <laughs> yes, thank you so much. So, Mickey, on that note, I know you monitor a lot of the industry data. What figures come to you that you have the most confidence in? And what story is that data telling us about the demand for an interest in tennis right now? That's a great question. And I've I, if I think a lot about this, the, the one thing I would talk about in all of our, our information and data we have with participation, it's core players. That number is pretty consistent. And even through the pandemic, um, I think this year we're flat to down 0.2% or something like that to a right around 12 million core players. And just so everybody knows, the core players, that's 10 or more times a year. So that's people mm -hmm. that are really invested into the, into the sport of tennis. And those are those are the ones that drive retail. They drive club club memberships, leagues, tournaments, the frequent social players that play at a public park every Saturday morning, et cetera. That's what really drives the sport. And and you see other sports out there, um, even, you know, lots of other racket sports or complimentary racket sports. Twelve million core players is really strong. And obviously, that's something where Florida really drives it home. They have a very strong number of core players. And that just tells you if you're serious about tennis um, and playing a lot of accessibility and a lot of availability to play. I'm glad you mentioned that. We're going to talk about that a little later when we dig into the Florida numbers. But that is actually really magical here in Florida. And what makes some of us unique is not just the core player, but how frequently they're playing. So we're going to get to that in just a minute. Um, so. While we're kind of on this subject, though, I'm going to stay with you, Mickey. USTA does spend a lot of our time and energy on the youth population. Um, I mean, I've been here for 12 years, and I think that's just been like drilled into our head. We got to get the kids playing. We got to get the kids playing, right? But I want to talk about adults. And, you know, you gave a really great presentation, which talked about um, how much adults have been growing. And we've seen some impressive gains in the adults. So I'm going to ask you to stay on that for a minute because I think you had some data on that. And then, Brian, I have a follow-up question for you. That's a great question, Laura. I'm really encouraged to hear someone ask that, too, for that matter, because 
I'm I'm over 50 and I play a lot of tennis and I've always played a lot of tennis. And yes, juniors is always a focal point in, in any sport. If you don't keep the pipeline going, obviously it can run out. But during the pandemic, our junior number was incredible in the sport of tennis. But right there with it was was players over 55. And so for 2022, jun- juniors were surpassed by players over 55. We added basically 500,000 mm-hmm. players over 55 into the sport. And that talks to the the baby boomers that are aging up, especially now the Gen Xers that are aging up in the sport. That's me. Yep. That's, <laughs> so, and, and I think it goes to, without saying that we're trying to say that more and actually get the information out there that tennis is a health and wellness sport. And people are looking for that well beyond the pandemic, um, as you know. And, and tennis is a great lifestyle. It adds 10 years to your life. So there's, it's, it's really hard to say no to tennis that's such a, such a social sport. It's really a matter of finding, finding a place to play and getting into uh, you know, a, a, a provider and a program that works for you. And I'm so happy to hear that because I know there's sort of this theory where if you play as a kid, you're more likely to play it as an adult. But the truth is somebody like Brian and me, you know, Brian's into motocross. I played softball for a really long time. You get to a point where you cannot play those things anymore at a given moment in your life, right? You have to give it up. And there's really two choices you have. You have golf and you have tennis. And so (laughs) thinking about you know, how we can really encourage more adults to get in the game. And I I think we hear that from a lot of our adult population that they didn't pick up a racket until they were maybe 30 or 40 years old. So it's great. And Brian, I have a follow-up question for you on this same, same topic. How does what we're seeing with like the adult gains in Florida, you know, our Florida programs have grown tremendously for adults in the past four years. Our adult beginner programs are consistently full. Our league program is at an all-time high. How does this compare to the national data? And do you think this growth in the adult space will continue? Yeah, and I think, like, it kind of just to piggyback off what Mickey had said, you know, like so many other things, there's there's a lagging effect that moves across the age, age spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. So we're kind of in this 10 year period, uh, you know, we're, we're following a 10 year period of stagnation where this 55 and older age group has now doubled in size. It was, you know, 1.7 million in 2012 versus 3.5 million in 2022. So tennis appears to be gaining momentum as a post-retirement activity. Um, so do I think this trend will continue as we move through 2023? Yes, absolutely and into 2024 as well. So for all the reasons that kind of Mickey mentioned, um, and, you know, I'll, I'll kind of get into a, some demographics a little bit, um, but yeah, for Florida specifically, you know, you, you look at the populace of, of, of the state. So, it, you know, it's not surprising that, you know, there's increases um, in that 55 and older group in terms of participation, and it, it follows the national average, but Florida specifically is is above the national average. And I'm curious to see in in the coming, we've had so many people move here, not just seniors, you know, the, the, the pandemic shifted another thing, like not only did it make tennis popular, but it also um, gave people the freedom maybe to move to other places from where they worked and people really wanted to move to Florida and a lot of them did in all different age demographics. So I'm very curious to see how that unfolds in the future, but um, definitely uh, will be something we're tracking as we go forward. Yeah, and I would say in Florida, 
obviously, you know, is part of this, but from a national perspective, um, you know, as Mickey mentioned early in the pandemic, a lot of the gains that we saw were kind of in that six to 12 year old um, range, uh, that younger cohort, but across all of the different age groups, um, each age group has grown by at least 1.2 million. Um, that was That's the average growth across all the different age groups. So um, 2022 was interesting because we saw that that 55 and older spike, but, uh, but still even in that younger co cohorts, there, there, there's still increases there. So I, I see that to continue as well. Awesome. Well, Mickey, let's kind of pivot a little bit because I want to talk about some of the data you shared recently about ball sales and racket sales because you, you gave some interesting insights about this at the PTR symposium in Hilton Head. And if I were to summarize it in like my own layman's terms, it's people are searching for tennis balls everywhere. <laughs> And racket sales are down in 2022 compared to 2021, which I think was the industry's best year ever. So what's your take on this information and how do the prices of these commodities and the supply chain issues factor into what we're seeing in these figures? Great question. Uh, very relevant to the last 36 months, you could say, where, where racket sales are into the market, junior racket sales for the decade preceding 2019 were down by almost 50%. Um, and that's shocking. There, There's some data that's not captured. We knew that about like eBay. There's so many eBay sales that are untracked and the used market of rackets, which really didn't exist exist before 20, 20, 2000 maybe and, and before the recession hit in there. But but there's a lot of rackets that are unaccounted for there. But really what we did see at, at early on in the pandemic that there was a surge in these casual players that didn't have a racket or latent players that played in the 70s and the 80s and said, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to go get a new racket. So you mean racket the wooden sales, racket does not that, function today? Yes, they can't play with that? Exactly. And believe it, working on the manufacturer side for 20 years, going to demo events right up through the pandemic and in and, and the last few years, you would. You can go to a retail shop and you look at the rackets to be strung. It was amazing during the pandemic. There would be, I saw a couple of retailers, 50 to 100 rackets against the wall that were mm -hmm. to be strung and they were two to three weeks behind schedule. Wow. And the rackets that were on against the wall were like Prince Pros or Prince Graphites, original Babylon Pure Dries wow. from 1999. So, People pulled it all out of their closets to get strung. And I think a lot of them did eventually go, oh my gosh, it's just time for new mm -hmm. rackets. So, mm -hmm. so racket sales in 2021 were their highest basically ever in the dollar amounts spent at retail. It was great. Uh, and that being said, prices were going up even before that with, with the tariff battles that happened <laughs> in 2018 prices were already going up and you compound that with all the the supply chain issues factories were shut down in china where most of the rackets are made um so that caused racket price to go up but now they've finally caught up in rackets uh and just one fact that i don't think i brought up at the at the convention where i last presented this was um the average purchase cycle for new rackets basically performance rackets um, that we see mostly with like USGA league members, tournament players, that's once every seven years. Okay. So the turnover is quite long and that stretched mm -hmm. 
uh, from 2010 to 2019. It used to be three years and it was five years, seven years. And that kind of goes along with the price of rackets, yeah. et cetera. Polyester strings last longer. So people don't go into shops as much. There's kind of some ripple effects of, of different technologies that impact the game. But um, so tennis rackets, they're finally caught up now, I would say. And there's probably an over uh, inventory at the mass and general sporting goods level of those starter rackets. So you'll see a lot of opportunity out there for consumers. Oh, you can get a deal. If you're Schools, new to tennis, you get it. a deal on a good racket right now. You got it. So I literally think the back half this year, you're going to see some incredible specials at retail, which is great for a sport. And I'm working yeah. with some of the manufacturers to hope put together some programs for schools that are bigger and better than ever before. So we can have great product for all these new players that came into the game. So uh, second part of that, you talk about tennis balls, and that's a little bit of a different story because with tennis balls, uh, there's a super long lead time uh, mm -hmm. and buying process, supply chain process to that. So even your small country clubs or pro shops that that order tennis balls for their summer program, you order it almost in the fall. Of, um, so it's a you know it's a seven to nine month lead time. Yeah. And the con pandemic basically caught everybody off guard when that happened. The ball orders were already put in for that next summer of 2020. And so everybody was looking for, for tennis balls like it was toilet paper. And for the next nine to 12 mm -hmm. months, you were not able to get tennis balls in your normal places of distribution. Um, and so they're just finally getting caught up for that. And of course, ball prices were very undervalued in the U.S. If you go to Europe and buy a can of uh, Penn Marathon or Wilson U.S. Open Balls or Dunlop ATP Balls, you're going to pay easily north of $10. I'd say $10 to $15 really? per wow. can. And the consumer behavior hmm. in Europe is so much different that you will play two to three times. Uh, you know, if you're an advanced player, you'll play two to three times with the same can of balls. So, And there's a lot of four-ball cans sold in Europe. So a lot of times consumers will play with two and save two. Uh, Etc. So, but ball prices—they're uh, not going down anytime soon, and mm -hmm. I expect them to continue to rise because we are so far behind the rest of the world. We really use tennis balls as a commodity here, commodity here in the U.S. and the rest of the world, not the case. Um, so we're a little bit lucky, and uh, it's kind of like the same thing with airline flights—they're finally catching up and going up to, to probably uh, where they should be. But. Uh, Anyway, yeah, yeah, you'll see some great deals on rackets. This I, I'm already seeing it online and some mm -hmm. some different brands and retailers right now. There's some BOGOs going on with bags and an incredible deal if you're a tennis consumer. Awesome. Uh, so hopefully everybody can take advantage of that, of that. And if you're a teaching pro, I'm sure you got your ball orders in for now as well as for the next nine months because that's what's happened. Everybody's placed future orders out there and right. hedging their bets that uh, they're going to get delivered on time. Yes, and we're, we'll keep doing that. We've been in the order way, way ahead and order more than you need for uh, several years now. And uh, it's good to know that that we should keep doing that. It's good insights there. Exactly. Great. Uh, okay, so let's talk about Florida data. Uh, we're going to, we've kind of set the scene from a national perspective. So Brian, Kind of circling back to where we started, what would you say the confidence level is in the Florida study, the PAC study, in terms of reflecting the broad trends across the state? And maybe what doesn't it tell us about what's happening in our state? Gotcha. 
Yeah, so, and I mentioned from a national perspective, you know, plus or minus 0.2%, 95% confidence level. Um, so when you look at Florida uh, at 8% participation rate at 1.6 million players, according to the Florida section report, um, you know, and, and as I mentioned, that data is, is is a two-year rolling average, which brings the error rate down even further. So at the uh, section level, we're looking at a plus or minus 0.9% margin okay. of error. Um, so that could theoretically, in Florida's case, equate to a 300 to 400,000 participant swing, approximately. Right. But that 0.9% margin of error is the margin of error across all of the different sections. So okay. it's actually a little bit less in Florida. The Florida section accounts for 7% of the U.S. overall uh, population, 7% of the U.S. tennis population. So the sample size in Florida is larger than some of the other sections. So okay. the margin of error is, is smaller as well. So in reality, we're talking about plus or minus 100 to 150,000 um, okay. participants probably in, in Florida when you're looking at the section report. Um, so there's, what does the report not tell us? And I'm sure Mickey, you have some thoughts on this as well, but, um, the question that I get asked all the time is, you know, do, do we have any way to follow up with a non-player surveyed mm. who indicate they are very interested mm. in trying tennis? Mm. Um, and the answer is yes and no. Uh, <laughs> so the 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 sample so the sample that we use it's sourced from uh, different providers so it's not a simple one stop shop um, mm -hmm. you know in the event we're unable to follow up with specific individuals who participated it's possible that we could screen for these people in future years um, additionally those who indicated very interested in trying tennis exist in our current databases so we could. You know, there could be some further data mining. We could even do some additional surveying uh, if, if, if possible, um, depending on the kind of information that, that you're interested in gathering. Um, and then I'd say, you know, that these reports follow the data. You know, they contain a lot of insights, but there is surely anecdotal and circumstantial information that could certainly provide more qualitative analysis for, for Florida specifically. So as you know, representative of the Florida section, you're trying to take tie this raw data back to these qualitative insights and anecdotal information. Um, mm -hmm. So that can sometimes be a challenge. So I, I think that's one kind of a little bit of a gap that these that the report itself misses. Yeah, yeah I think I, that's fair. Go ahead, Mick. Go ahead. Yeah, I would add to that. It's like that's the million dollar question. It is all these latent demand players. Uh, what's the one thing that's going to get them? Because if they indicate the interest, we don't know that. So we're hopefully going to be able to <laughs> to dial that question up mm -hmm. in, a, in a different way as we go forward, uh, as we improve our uh, surveys in the next next six months to the end of the year, for that matter. Yeah, and I think one of the things I'm really intrigued by, which I don't know that the data really reflects, I think that the curiosity that I have mostly is on the demographic data and to say, are we capturing enough of any one particular demographic to make that comparison meaningful? And when we know that some demographics of, of consumers are in specific neighborhoods or areas or pockets or maybe more or less likely to answer surveys and things, knowing um, are there different categories that maybe the survey data may be more or less reflective of. So I think that's one of the things I maybe struggle with the most is 
how much to read into the demographic information that's provided around income, race, ethnicity, et cetera, and are we reaching an appropriate sample size of those people to draw a conclusion that this is how many people in this demographic we may be missing or or not missing? Yeah. And that's a good question. And we've actually done uh, quite a few just one-off reports and taken deeper dives with different sections for for questions specifically like this. You know, we could, you know, we can take, you know, the sample set that we have, do a, you know, Florida specific research study, you know, on, you know, demographics, for instance, and, you know, and try to boost the confidence level in those numbers. Um, Mickey, you know, you and I've worked on like the state of Hawaii, for instance, is a great example. We've, we've traditionally never been able to do a section report for Hawaii because the sample size um, as part of the national study wasn't large enough. So we did a one-off um, independent study for Hawaii specifically. It was a longer time period because we it, it took us longer to kind of get the necessary sample size. Um, but those are the type of measures that we can that we can employ moving forward as well. Now that we kind of have two different mm -hmm. survey providers that we've we're blending numbers, it's easier to do. Awesome. We'll put a pin in that. I've got it recorded, so yeah. we'll have to follow <laughs> up on that one. Um, so staying with you, Brian, for just a minute. One thing that really stood out to me in the report almost immediately was that the latent demand, um, which we just talked about in our state is roughly equal to our current participation. Um, can you just explain a little bit about how you measure that? Yeah, so uh, latent demand is actually, it's a survey question. So it's uh, non-tennis players are asked to, uh, to what degree they are interested in playing tennis in the next year. Uh, so in the case of Florida, this came out to 1.7 million people ages mm -hmm. six and older are potential players. So, so it actually is a survey question. Um, and we, it's, and then we just, it's a direct tie, uh, tie from that question. I will note that in 2020, or I'm sorry, prior to 2020, respondents were asked about their interest in playing tennis. And then in 2020, the survey question changed slightly. Um, we started to use the word intent you know, what is their intent mm. to play tennis? Okay. Uh, and that was only in 2020. We shifted the wording back to interest in 2021 and 2022 to stay more in line with the National Golf Foundation study. Um, so we didn't see any marked difference in, in, in the data in 2020, but I, I do want to throw that out there as a caveat that there was a yeah. year there in 2020 where the, the wording changed because interest and intent there's a little bit of a difference a different. there. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so. I appreciate you sharing that and also sharing that there you didn't see a, a change, but just putting that little asterisk on it is, is super helpful and why you changed it back. So thank you. Yeah. Somebody, somebody listening to this podcast may have taken the survey and I, I don't want to get... <laughs> I mean, I, if they can remember how different so. it was and they remember <laughs> right. that one word, um, we right. probably need them developing surveys and studies because that means they're very detail-oriented person. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, following that question, uh, Mickey, when you look at the that sort of increase in the, the latent demand across the board, is it fair to say that the tennis ecosystem is growing more constrained, meaning that there's just a lot of people who want to play and our infrastructure is you know, not really able to accommodate them right now? Or is there some other conclusion we should be drawing related to that high latent demand number? 
Yeah, I think it's a pretty simple answer to that question is basically I've been fortunate enough to visit a lot of facilities across the country in the last year, year and a half. Um, and I, whether it's a public facility, private facility, commercial club, country club, I would say programming is at or near capacity. Uh, all our providers are looking for qualified teaching pros to deliver uh, and we know we have upside because there's demand out there. We just need more coaches. And then I would add to that, we need more courts because yeah. the clubs that are have programming going on, people want program tennis activities. Uh, they're bursting at the seams. So yeah, we we it's it's we have a lot of supply. Uh, we need to figure out how to quickly expand to meet the demand. I'm glad you mentioned both of those things because I do think they go hand in hand, right? And sometimes we have that difficulty when we talk to, say, a municipality and we say, hey, there's so much demand and you need more courts. And they'll say, but our courts are empty. And it's like, yes, you also need more coaches and you need more programs, you know, and you need these things are sort of all all connected. So thank you for making that uh, important point. But uh, there is a lot of upside there. So for the municipalities who are listening to this, um, if you build it and you program it, they will come. That's smart. And I would add to that, uh, as you know, um, you're doing the same in the Florida section. We're working with coach organizations to recruit and better train new prospective coaches and our grassroots effort at the advocacy level across the country uh, really need to refocus at the local community level with CTAs, et cetera. Those just tennis ambassadors, yeah. advocates need to know who to contact in their local community to make sure we protect and grow our infrastructure um, because tennis is a mature sport. It's been around for a yeah. long time. And and uh, with the recent surge in demand, we expect it, these behaviors to continue that people are going to keep on playing tennis and we're going to keep growing. So we got to we got to get back to the basics and, and make yeah. sure. So well said. So, Brian, um, I'm going to come back to you. Florida, we, we're going to come full circle here because this came up in the beginning. I think Mickey brought it up. So yeah. Florida has the highest number of average days played. So we have a lot of core players. And I think the average is, is right around 30 days or somewhere close to 30 days. So basically, they're playing a lot of tennis here in Florida. Why is this an important metric for us to look at in terms of the services that we provide? And then I have a follow-up question after that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting from a, you know, from a national perspective, you know, there's been a decade long declining trend of both, you know, average play occasions, proportion of tennis participants who are core players, um, you know, which speaks to increasing, you know, consumer fragmentation. But it's interesting in Florida, uh, the frequency of play, as you mentioned, for the section is well above the national average in 2022, Florida had the highest core to casual player ratio of any section in the U.S. And it's interesting because, you know, play occasions increased year over year in Florida from an average of 31 days played in 2021 to 32.5 days played in 2022. So your percentage of core players also increased 2% year over year, and your percentage of casual players decreased by 2% during that same cycle. Mm -hmm. So the data would indicate that not only are play occasions up in 2022, but you've converted a percentage of casual players to core. 
Oh yeah, so they don't from, get away from us. We're we're very right. <laughs> we're very aggressive here. If you play, we keep you. <laughs> yeah. So I would say, like from a services standpoint, keep doing what you're doing because the numbers indicate that Florida is not following the the declining national trend. Uh, Florida actually moved in a positive direction in 2022, which which is impressive. Very impressive. Like I said, we're pretty persistent here, so maybe that has something to do with it. But um, kudos to our staff and everybody, our providers. They're they're very good at keeping people on the court. Um, which well, is Florida. Lord, to add to that, I would say just looking at those core numbers, you can't have a big, strong amount of core players unless you have that strong infrastructure to support mm -hmm. it. So. For sure, Florida over the years has done a great job working with park and rec city planners as they build community tennis facilities across the state. So, yeah, keep it up. <laughs> well, and we're very lucky in Florida because I do think we have more courts per person than than other states. And and that's actually, I mean, as much as I would like to say we we have something to do with it. The truth is, is that recreational services because of our weather and because of the nature of our state are very, very highly valued here. So we don't have to do a tremendous amount to sell it to the parks and rec. What's challenging about it, however, is that we require more support and programming on a tennis court than say a bike trail or some other activities, which is very low maintenance. So the hardest thing that we have is to help them actually manage it effectively when they do build more courts, particularly when you get over a certain number of courts, right? Two to four courts can kind of take care of themselves sometimes, but when you start having, you know, six, eight, 10, 12, then it becomes more of a management challenge. And so uh, we are trying to do a better job and to be better advocates and services for that. So I appreciate you saying that, but also shout out to Florida and all the parks and recs who highly value recreational services. So we're very, very blessed here compared to maybe some other areas of the country. So my follow-up question uh, to that question was looking at the demographics of Florida players and where they typically play, you know, park and rec, condo association or homeowners association, schools, et cetera. Is there anything that stands out to you, Brian, as being different from other areas of the country? Yeah, from a from a demographic standpoint, uh, tennis players in, in the Florida section tend to skew more male. Uh, older, 55 years and older, uh, significantly more Hispanic than other than other sections. Um, and when you look at the venue in which these older groups play, it kind of makes sense, right? You know, Florida in the report, you'll see that Florida index is high on apartment and condo, um, mm -hmm. but also high in private residence, country clubs, rec centers. So, you know, it 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 the 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 large number of 55 and older, you know, and 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 where they play, right. you know, those those kind of go hand in hand and there's a correlation there. So um, I think that is probably probably more unique to the Florida section versus other sections. Interesting. All right. So my last question is for both of you. Mickey, I'll start with you. We've talked about some things that are different in Florida than the rest of the country, and we talked about some unique things that were uh, good from a 2022 perspective. Is there anything else in the data that surprised you, and is there any new data you're working on to track in the future? So, Mickey, I'll start with you, and then, Brian, you can bring us home. Well, perfect. That's a great question to end on, uh, talking about the future and, and really what 
I, I don't know if I'm surprised. I'm just super delighted and excited to see that how many, how much diversity there is in our sport now. I think we've continued to grow each segment uh, with Latinos leading the way this past year uh, in an enormous way. And now I think we're at nearly 40% people of color that played tennis in 2022. So we're moving away from that tennis is an elitist sport uh, perception that that's off and on come out in the 70s and 80s and 90s. But I think we're far away from that. And you look at what's going on in the sport from our tour players to college players and tennis on campus, you name it. It's a super diverse sport, uh, very aspirational. And obviously the health and wellness benefits of it uh, just push it push it across the line. So the, just overall, we're looking and we're really focused. The TIA right now is laser focused on data and research. And uh, we're going to be making some more changes and improvements to our uh, reporting in the next year. So stay tuned. And when we do this podcast a year from now, hopefully we'll have uh, we'll have to add some time to really dig into some new insights that we pull up. Well, I'm putting you down for for or we'll maybe do it a little earlier in 2024. <laughs> if you've got some good good insights for us, we'll do some breaking news on the Here to Serve podcast. Brian, what's what are your thoughts on anything that surprised you and what you might like to any news areas you'd like to look at going forward? Yeah, to expand on that on Mickey's last point. Um, so one of the things that we were able to do so traditionally, um, and kind of going back to the methodology of kind of how we obtain some of the data. Traditionally, the the PAC survey, that survey itself measure, measured a number of different sports across a wide range of industries. So we really couldn't customize the survey itself, the questions to obtain new trends um, related to things like insights and perceptions around tennis. Um, partnering with the National Golf Foundation in their PES survey, you know, that survey only measures two sports, tennis and golf. So we're able to ask all of the same questions as PAC, but add in additional questions around the perceptions of tennis, giving us additional qualitative insights that we've been looking for. And we can make tweaks to these questions every year. So, um, you know, that, that's that, that's a capability that we just haven't had previously. Uh, the second thing we're able to, to accomplish um, is just the reporting frequency. Because mm -hmm. we doubled the sample size, we're able to track participation throughout the year, not just at year mm -hmm. end. Um, okay. as, Mick, as Mickey can attest, we were monitoring participation trends on a quarterly basis in 2022 and even monthly towards the end of 2022. So that real-time reporting and monitoring allows us to make real-time decisions. So it's, it's, it's exciting moving forward. And as we continue to gather more data, it, you know, it's, it, we can, you know, pull this, pull that information faster and faster. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be interesting. That's super exciting. I mean, I think that would be really intriguing for us to see it, you know, on a more regular type of basis and then maybe even drill down into what are those metrics we'd like to see on a more regular basis because the data would, you know, only be beneficial if we can use it or adjust what we're doing in some way, shape or form, right? So if we see a trend, um, you know, on, on what regularity could we actually act upon that? So very, very yeah. interesting. I would love to I, see how I that unfolds. When, I can tell you when we launched this National Golf Foundation survey and we were putting together the um, the additional questions that we were going to add, we got really excited and we gave them like 100 questions. And they're like, no, 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 keep it, 
<laughs> you know, they, they do limit us in the number of questions mm -hmm. that we can ask, but uh, but we can customize it, which is which is interesting. So do you ever see us just doing our own tennis research or do you see us always being paired with the, the golf study? Um, you know, it's I think. It, it's good. You don't want it to be that. And, and Keith's story with sports marketing surveys, he'll always say this is, you know, when you're only surveying one sport, it starts to index kind of high. It, it's okay. good to throw a couple sports in there. So I say it's only tennis and golf, but there actually are like four or five in that survey. And that's good because you kind of want to give yeah. people a choice. If you're only asking tennis, then they they pick tennis, right? right? So, um, mm -hmm. so yeah, I think we're always going to have it paired with something because it just from a, a survey standpoint, that makes sense. Awesome. Well, I could ask you guys probably 20 more questions, but I know we're out of time today and you've shared so much that's very helpful. So um, thank you both for taking the time to be on the podcast. I've already marked it down that we have some follow-up to do for some Florida-specific research and that we also will do this podcast again next year when we have new data to share. So appreciate you both so much. And um, just again, thank you for joining me today. Thank awesome. You. This is great. Thanks, Laura. The, oh, it's my pleasure. For those of you who are listening to the audio only version of this podcast, be sure to visit USTA Florida's YouTube channel where you can see the full video version. And of course, for all episodes of the Here to Serve podcast, including topics, dates, and links, visit USTAFlorida.com slash here to serve. Thank you for tuning in and have a wonderful rest of your day.